Mark is in the New Testament, second of the gospel narratives. We're going to read this passage here. Um, it's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but Mark writes pretty concisely. So 20 verses, but not really long. Let me uh, read this to us, and then we'll take a moment to pray. Mark writes, they, that being Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. As soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even with a chain, because he often had been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. What is your name? Jesus asked him. My name is Legion, he answered him, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. So a large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him, send us to the pigs so that we may enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. The herd of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned there. The men who tended them ran off and reported it in the town and the countryside, and people went to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the man who had been demon-possessed sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs. Then they began to beg him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him earnestly that he might remain with him. And Jesus did not let him, but told him, go home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went out and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all amazed. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment and uh, just take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. We'll take a moment of silence. We believe that God is our good father. He longs to speak to his children. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He dwells in us to speak and to challenge and to awaken God's words within us and to seek a response from us of faith and repentance and trust. So let's take a moment and ask God to speak to us, and then I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, you present to us in your word a world filled with, supercharged with supernatural beings, both angels and demons, God our creator God, and created, not gods, anti-gods. God, these forces oppress us, they harass us, they exploit us, they seek to undo and to disintegrate the goodness that you've placed in the world. And so, God, would you open up our eyes to see this reality, to see um, the invitation of Jesus to be rescued from the forces of darkness, to see that our battles are not against flesh and blood, as Paul says, but against the principalities and powers. 
that rule over this dark age. So God, would you give us in your name the authority and the heart to be about your business of deliverance and the work of discipleship. Teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing uh, this week two of a new series that we started uh, last week called Encountering Jesus. And we're looking at different narrative accounts of people who came into contact with Jesus, had their lives transformed and became his disciples. And we're asking the question, what does that mean for us today in the world in which we live? Because we, I said last week, so much of what we are experiencing um, really in our world and, and so much of the brokenness and the, the sin and the um, idolatry and the injustice perpetuated in the name of Jesus oftentimes comes because we've experienced a failure of discipleship. And so we read that quote last week, what you, uh, what you present as the gospel is what you're going to present as discipleship. And so we want to make sure we understand what Jesus was about in bringing the good news. And we have this uh, really strange story, a really bizarre story here in Mark chapter 5 about Jesus meeting a man who was oppressed, who was traumatized, uh, the New Testament writers say, demonized. And I don't know where you're at with demons. Uh, I wish we had time. I want to encourage you, actually, um, because I'm sure you guys all pay attention to every sermon and you've got them all memorized. But if you don't remember and you weren't there during COVID, like April of last year, I actually taught a series. uh, We taught a series on the Holy Spirit. And I did a whole message on deliverance. And we talked about deliverance and the Holy Spirit and how, uh, how that works in the life of a disciple in very like detailed biblical theology practice. So go back to that on our podcast or on our website. You can go back to that deliverance message, and, and we'll give you there kind of an origin story of angels and demons and spiritual warfare. Uh, we don't have time to do that, but I did find it interesting. Even if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're skeptical, maybe you're um, even skeptical of supernatural activity, and you say, no, this, I, I don't, I don't, this seems weird to me. Um, the, the Atlantic, which is no religious magazine, uh, had an article recently called American Exorcism. I encourage you to read that. And they're talking about, in the article, the uptick, the, the surge of uh, requests for exorcisms. And they have accounts of exorcism, actually, uh, in this article. Just in Indianapolis alone, uh, there's apparently, like, a lead exorcist here who uh, represents the Catholic Church. Just over the last couple of years, the number of exorcism requests has gone up into the thousands here on a local level. And, uh, and so it's interesting, one of the things they say in the article, and again, this is kind of a non-Christian looking at this, is as secularism continues to grow and take hold of our imagination, there is a loss of meaning and a loss of purpose and a, kind of a, a, a malaise, a fear and anxiety that has gripped our culture in many ways. And uh, one of the interesting analyses was that maybe this is the reason we're experiencing an uptick in belief in the supernatural and in specifically in the demonic and a desire to be freed from the demonic. And seeing that actually as what's underneath some of our most intractable social problems, as we'll see here in a moment. So even if you're here and you're like, that sounds crazy, uh, I just want you to kind of know, like, uh, the culture around us thinks it's less crazy. Uh, and C.S. Lewis, of course, famously in Screwtape Letters says there's two errors, equal and opposite errors, when it comes to the demonic. One is to be obsessed with them, which I'll admit, that was me uh, and has been me. I, I grew up with a weird obsession with the demonic. I, I like Stephen King novels, uh, so dark, kind of dark li- literature. Uh, my mom's here. If you want to know why I was able to read Stephen King at age 10, she's a literature English teacher. You can ask her. Uh, but I, I was fascinated with kind of the demonic and, you know, uh, head-spinning poltergeist movies, The Exorcist. So for some of us, it's like this weird occupation. And really, that was a part of uh, really kind of what even was a catalyst for me coming to Jesus was just a deep fear of, of uh, kind of the demonic uh, powers and dark powers. And then for some of us, he says the opposite error is, of course, to ignore it and act like it doesn't exist. 
Jesus believed that demons were real. And what's interesting here, um, and again, this is why it's so important that you understand what the good news of Jesus is. We talked about last week. The good news of Jesus is not just that Jesus came to save us from our sins and forgive our sins and to give us uh, new life in heaven when we die, right? Like we kind of talked deeply about that last week. He, he says when he shows up that he's come to bring the kingdom of God into the world, right? He is the kingdom of God, the reign and the rule of God he's come to bring into the world. So this is the good news that Jesus preached, that the reign and the rule of God is here in Jesus. And immediately what you see is he begins to call disciples to follow him. And what you see right in chapter one, right on the heels of what we just talked about last week, this good news that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth is here. Immediately there is a counter movement, a counter resistance from the kingdom of darkness. And right in chapter one in Mark, Mark wants us to see that there is a battle that is being waged in the unseen world that has very like tangible effects in our world, but it's mostly hidden, is that Jesus is engaging in a battle between his kingdom of truth and light and justice and the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And read verses 23 through 28 later in chapter one. The first thing that Jesus encounters is demonic resistance to the kingdom of God coming into the world. And so in chapters one through four in his ministry in Galilee, Jesus is traveling town to town, and he's doing two things. He's preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is here, and we often miss this, he's demonstrating the good news that the kingdom of God is here. He's demonstrating it through healing. He's demonstrating it through exorcism. He's demonstrating it through displays of the power of the kingdom of God as it draws near to a dark and broken and rebellious world. And in chapter four, Jesus comes off the heels right before this. It's really important that you understand the context, because otherwise this chapter makes no sense. Chapter four, um, Jesus and his disciples are exhausted. They've had a busy season of ministry, literally minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day. He is swamped with people who are seeking to be healed from various afflictions, mental illnesses, uh, demonic uh, demonizations, uh, poverty, hunger. All of these people are just crowding Jesus, and he's just emanating this effortless power of the kingdom of God. And so um, they're tired, as you would be if you were doing that. And so um, he says, hey, let's jump into a boat and let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And while Jesus is napping, he's human, he's napping, he's tired, uh, a big violent uh, storm blows up over the waters. And what's really interesting is there are numerous parallels between the violent storm in chapter four that is raging on the open waters of the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, the Jews were terrified of because they saw it as the abyss and kind of the realm of uh, the chaotic and that which was kind of outside of God's control. While the storms are raging, we see uh, in chapter five a violent storm raging inside of a man. And so there's all these parallels of how Jesus' power is going to prevail over chaos and destruction and evil. And these two passages are related. But listen to what Mark says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the region of the Gerasenes. Now, it's important, again, to understand geographically what's happening and culturally what's happening here, because otherwise this story won't make a lot of sense. This city, which many believe is uh, Kersey, so I have a map here, if we can throw that up. This is the Galilee region. And so um, you can see uh, most of the stories in the Galilee region take place on the left, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum. Uh, the Mount of Beatitudes, these would have been the areas where Nazareth, where Jesus was born and did a lot of his ministry. On the east of the Sea of Galilee was this area called 
the Decapolis. And most people believe that this story takes place in modern-day Kersey, um, right there just to the east of the Sea of Galilee. The Decapolis was really um, kind of an interesting place. Historically, this region, if you read the Old Testament, belonged to the seven pagan Canaanite nations that were supposed to be driven out of the Promised Land by Joshua and the Israelites after they left Egypt. Now, we know uh, that they didn't completely drive them out. And so these were the descendants of those Canaanite pagan nations. They worshiped Baal. They committed horrific acts of violence and injustice. They engaged in genocide and in all kinds of sexually perverse temple practices. They sacrificed their children, right? So we have to keep that in mind as we think about why there was such contempt for this area and why they were being driven out of the land. There was a level of wickedness that's incomprehensible even to our modern ears. And in the years just before Jesus was born, there was an intense period in the Decapolis of political violence. And this area had become kind of a contested space between the Jews, the Greeks, and then later on the Romans. Originally, um, the Decapolis uh, was comprised of uh, sections of Alexander the Great's empire that was divided up after his death. So quick history lesson, sorry. In 64 BC, the Roman general Pompey brought this entire region under Roman control and organized these uh, areas into what became known as the Decapolis, which means 10 cities. So if you're reading this in Greek, it just says 10 cities, uh, which was a league of cities uh, east of the Sea of Galilee, which were mostly semi-autonomous. They like minted their own coins and they had quite a bit of freedom. Um, And it was settled mostly by Roman troops. And so what the Roman emperors wanted to do in this region, and really coming across the Sea of Galilee, even into the region of the Jews, was to spread Greco-Roman culture throughout the ancient Near East. They wanted to take the language, the religions, the arts, the philosophy, the politics, the values of the Greco-Roman Empire, and they wanted that to be spread across. I mean, they had, they had no bones about being imperialistic and colonialistic. They thought that Greco-Roman culture was the apex of uh, humanity, of human history, and so they wanted everybody to share in what they thought was kind of the liberation of the mind and the body and the spirit. Uh, and what was really truth. And so they funded and constructed, and I wish I could show you pictures, all kinds of cultural institutions, theaters, uh, gymnasiums, stadiums, and temples. And what they were trying to do is to convert Jews and other local inhabitants to adopt a Greco-Roman vision of human flourishing. Now, as you can imagine, Jews weren't really down for that, and we'll learn more about that. And they, they were, uh, to be a faithful Jew in many ways to, was to resist this cultural imperialism. You see, you see that in the, the holiness movement. Like the Pharisees get a bad rap, but it started as a reaction to this kind of stuff. They didn't want to compromise themselves with the surrounding paganism of the Roman Empire. The zealots resisted it through political violence. The Essenes chose to withdraw from it and go out into the desert and live like monastics. What started as an effort to maintain their own distinct identity over time morphed into just a full-blown war. Literally, it broke out into violence in the centuries leading up to and was a series of hostile takeovers between the Jews and the Greeks, and eventually the Romans kind of settled it and then became the occupying power. And there was just this massive tension between the Jews and the Greeks and the Romans. And Decapolis was known by the Jews, you see the language there, the other side of the sea. You could capitalize that other. These were the others. We all have our others, right? We all have those people who are evil, those people who are bad. 
The capitalist was known in Jewish circles as the distant country. Many people actually think when in Luke 15, when the prodigal runs away from home in the story that Jesus tells that he goes to the far country, many people believe it was Decapolis, uh, this region that he actually uh, went to. So everything in this passage, culturally, geographically, spiritually, is intended to tell us that the Jews saw these people and their culture as unclean, as ungodly, as damnable beyond Redemption. This is a dark place that good Jews avoid at all costs. Now, what's so Jesus is that he goes right into the heart of darkness. Jesus says, oh, you don't like those people? That's where I'm going, right? And like you can imagine the disciples and stuff being like, you're going where? Like, like in our city, we have these areas, right? If you live uh, north of 38th Street, it's like Jesus is going south of 38th Street. He's going down into Mapleton Fall Creek. He's going down into Martindale Brightwood. He's going down into the west side. Like, and we have these stigmas. If you live downtown, maybe when I preach downtown at some of downtown, they'll, they'll say the other side is going north of Broderville, right? So that's kind of how they see us. Uh, so it's mutual. Some of you are like, no, it's like south of Greenwood. You're going south to Kentucky? You know, like, well, how dare you? Like, those are the places where Jesus hung out. Those are the places where he brought the good news. And so we see Jesus have this encounter with not only a man. There's actually two encounters happening here. One is the encounter that the disciples are having with Jesus as Jesus encounters this man. The other is the encounter that Jesus is having with this traumatized, oppressed man. Like I said, this takes place, just next picture, uh, uh, in a place called Kersey. The disciples would have gotten out of the boat, and you can see here, a set up on this hillside, cut into the hillside would have been these tombs. And Mark says, as soon as he got out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit, which unclean spirit just means evil spirit in the book of Mark, came out of the tombs and met him. He lived in the tombs, and no one was able to restrain him anymore, not even a chain, not even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but had torn the chains apart and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he's crying out and cutting himself with stones. A man created in the image of God, self-mutilating. You could imagine the Jews kind of going, yep, told you we shouldn't have come across the sea. This is the kind of crazy people that live over here. Now again, we don't have time to go into the full biblical story of demons. But just in case you're new to this idea, um, the, I don't like the translation here. Um, a better translation uh, down, for, if you look down in the passage, you'll see demon-possessed mentioned several times. A better translation, I think, is actually demonized. So this man is demonized. Um, a demonization is simply, just think of it like an infestation, like you live in Broderpool, some of you guys have roaches, like you have you know, roach infestations. Think of a house that has been completely like eaten from the bottom up. Uh, it is just infested with demons and influenced by the accusations, the discouragement, the temptation, the exploitation, the, the terror. Like that's what it's like to be infested. Like you've basically lost control of your physical, mental, spiritual, relational capacities. And, and I want to make a note here because I know that a lot of us care deeply about mental illness. This is not the same thing as mental illness. If you go back in chapter two, when they're bringing people to Jesus, one of the things that Mark is careful to differentiate is those who are coming who are demon-possessed and those who are coming who the literal word is, uh, their, their minds are shot to the moon. They're lunat literally lunatic meant one who is out of their mind. So the Bible is so nuanced in how it presents mental illness, demonization, so they're not the same thing. It doesn't mean they can't interact with one another, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a man who has been infested 
with the demonic. He needs to be healed. Now, in, in the New Testament, there's two causes of demonization. We often think of demonization as the first cause, which is intentional deception, right? Like somebody opens themselves up, they leave a foothold for the enemy, uh, they sin, maybe they're, they're proud or they're uh, given to fear, and they, and they sin somehow, and then the demonic kind of enters in through that foothold. Or sometimes when people sin against you, you can be uh, demonized when somebody sins against you, experience trauma, and the evil one can use your vulnerabilities. The evil one is a master at weaponizing your vulnerabilities, psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, and he will enter into that space and terrorize you. And there's all kinds of warnings throughout the New Testament to resist the devil, to flee the devil. Okay, that assumes kind of a conscious, volitional choice in which you are being deceived by the evil one, at least partly. Now, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed, but you can be demonized, the Bible says. We're not talking about that, though, in the story. This kind of demonization is what I'll just call unprovoked oppression. Unprovoked oppression. Notice in this story there's no cause for this man's demonization. There's no foothold. There's no mention of sin. Did you know that in the Bible, even children, like young children get demonized? So there's a category for like just straight up oppression, unprovoked, nothing that you did to uh, deserve it. David Garland, a New Testament scholar, um, writing in his uh, commentary in this passage says this, in the New Testament, the demonized individual is a victim to be pitied and to be liberated from oppression. Such people are never rebuked. You won't see a rebuke in this passage towards the man himself. Uh, never told to repent. Doesn't mean he's not a sinner. Just means that's not his problem here. Never told that their sins are forgiven. What they need is a new benevolent power to come into their lives and to take control. This is what Christ offers the wreck of a man in this story. And notice how traumatized this man is. I mean, if your heart is not wrenched, in reading this story, you, I mean, you're, you're a tin man. Like, you have no heart. This man, I mean, we see here just, like, we trivialize evil in the world so much, right? We trivialize the effects, especially those of us who've not lived through serious trauma, who've not been oppressed before. We have no idea the depths. I mean, look at the power of evil to completely degrade, not only an individual, but a society, a community, to dehumanize, to traumatize. And notice Jesus' heart, his authority to bring healing on multiple levels. I mean, this man lived in the tombs, right? Tombs or graveyards were considered unclean according to Old Testament law. If you came into contact with the dead, uh, you were defiled for seven days. You had to go through a ritual cleansing. And later rabbinic interpretation extended that uncleanness or that, that sense of being soiled or stained or dirty um, or shamed to include contact with the funeral buyers, uh, with the mattresses, the pillows, the tombs themselves. And if you didn't go through that process of ritual cleansing, you were cut off from the community. And so on top of your shame, you also were dealing with massive social exclusion and exclusion and isolation. And again, notice this man is just completely and utterly out of his mind. He's naked. He's violent. Like nobody could subdue him. They've tried to chain this man down. He's animalistic. I mean, the word for subdued, nobody could subdue him. That same word is used in James chapter three for taming a wild beast. He is self-mutilating. He is self-destructing right in front of the community's eyes. 
So it makes sense. Like when he saw Jesus from a distance, he sees God in the flesh. He runs to him and he cries out to Jesus and he kneels down before him. Notice the story continues. When Jesus saw, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him and he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you before God, don't torment me. For he had told him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now what's interesting here is when, they, when the demon speaks to Jesus and he says, I beg you before God, or in other translations it says, I adjure you before the most high God. That is a that's an exorcism formula that Jewish rabbis used. And they thought if you could say the uh, demon's name, you could take, take control of them. And so what's interesting is when Jesus shows up, the demons try to exorcise him, and Jesus is like, uh-uh, that's not how we roll here. No, that's, that's not what we do. I exercise you. You don't exercise authority over me. And he, and he says just simply, what is your name? What is your name? Why does he do that? Why does he ask the demon's name? One of the things that um, I learned when I lived in South Florida, before I lived here, um, Latino culture is different than uh, what I grew up with, at least, in, uh, in Kentucky. When you meet somebody in Kentucky growing up, Louisville, first question you ask somebody is what? What do you do, right? What do you do? That's, that's kind of like how we get to know each other, right? In Latino culture, what I learned oftentimes uh, is the first question that's asked is, who's your mother and father? What's your genealogy? Where do you come from? Who do you belong to? Like genealogy is such a part in Latino culture of who you are. You don't separate out your family of origin from who you are today. It's baked into your identity, right? And, and we see that like every person has a genealogy. Every, you could say every ideology also has a genealogy. Every affliction has a genealogy. Every captivity also has a genealogy. What Jesus is asking is he's asking this man to name the source of his captivity. His captivity. See, captivity has a genealogy. He wants to know what is it that has formed you? What is it that has made you who you are today? What assumptions, what forces are seeking to demonize and oppress you? And it's really important that we name those. Jesus is inviting this man into redemption by naming his own bondage. And the man responds, my name is Legion, because we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the region. This word legion was a military word. And it was desi- uh, used to designate the largest troop unit in the Roman army. It's somewhere between 6,000 and 8,000 soldiers, depending on uh, the, the decade that, um, that you look at in the early first century. And what Jesus is doing in pointing out this, and uh, pointing attention, drawing attention to legion, is that there are two levels of demonization and two levels of healing happening simultaneously. One, Jesus is just simply noting here that uh, this man was infested by a a vast array of demonic influences. Many, 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 many different uh, demons are indwelling this man, and it's gonna take some deep liberation in order to free him up. But he's also pointing out something larger by using this word legion, which was kind of derived from a Latin context and a Roman context. He's also, I think, pointing out the grip, and many people have have pointed this out, the grip of the demonically influenced Roman power structures on this community. He's saying this isn't just about one man. This is about an entire community. This is about an entire region. This is about an entire empire. From the moment that Jesus attempts to enter this region in chapter four, we see demonic forces 
just surrounding this, like just prohibiting, trying to prohibit Jesus from coming into the region. From a violent storm that surrounds the Decapolis area, Jesus enters in with the kingdom of God to these actual, this man possessed by a demon to what we see in the larger community. Jesus is drawing our attention to the fact that demonization is happening on multiple levels. The individual, yes, this man is possessed, but this region, this this community is also oppressed by, by the demonic. That's the whole thing about the pigs, right? Like, it's like, what's, why, why the pigs? Why the pigs have to die? What's wrong with the pigs? Like, what did they do? They didn't do anything wrong. Well, I don't know. Satan's the one that takes the pigs into the sea. Uh, Jesus doesn't command them into the sea. But here's what we need to know about pigs. Pigs were considered unclean in the Old Testament law. And, and raising pigs, actually, uh, pig farming was uh, considered an unclean occupation. It's very likely that these pigs were being uh, used, raised, and sold to the markets in Decapolis, for use in pagan temple worship. But that's not the, the biggest issue. Um, one of the interesting things about the pig in Roman kind of mythology and symbolism in the military was that the 10th legion, which was dispatched from uh, the larger Roman military forces to keep the peace in this area uh, and patrol this region. Did you know what the emblem is for the 10th legion? Look at this next picture here. A wild pig. Wild pig was kind of the emblem of Legion 10 that oversaw this region. Pigs, in the Jewish mind, were 100% symbols of Roman oppression. They were symbols of paganism and persecution. See, if you know the story of this region that I began to tell a little bit earlier, there was uh, a war fought called the Maccabean Revolt, just a generation before Jesus was born. If, you've ever, if you were Jewish or you know somebody who's Jewish and they celebrate Hanukkah, Hanukkah, the festival of the lights, actually is a celebration of the liberation of the, uh, the Jewish people during this time. And in this Maccabean Revolt, one of Alexander the Great's generals compels a Jewish priest to go into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice a pig on the altar is an act of blasphemy. Blasphemy. The Jews get ticked, and uh, Judas Maccabeus, uh, for whom the revolt was named, his father, who was kind of a rural Jewish priest, goes in, kills this priest, and completely like sanitizes and sanctifies the temple. So what Jesus is pointing to here, he's dialing into this reality that to the Jews, the Romans were like unclean pigs. Pigs were a symbol of their oppression. And Jesus comes in and he heals a man. And he says, I'm not going to come in with the sword. I'm not going to call down fire. I've come to bring healing. We see the demonization of the community also in the way they treated this man, the way they responded when Jesus healed him. I mean, notice later on in the passage, when Jesus heals the man, they get afraid and they beg Jesus to leave, right? Like those pigs are worth a lot of money. We see that oftentimes when when Jesus comes to liberate, it upsets the status quo, right? And those who have something to lose all of a sudden get angry. Pigs are worth a lot of money. And what Jesus is saying is that human life is worth more than your economic security. David Garland says it like this again. These details do not simply add color to the narrative, but indicate that this incident also has to do with Jesus' encounter with the community. It is a community that beats chains and dehumanizes other human beings. It only knows how to use force, how to crack down on madmen, how to protect its property. But this community fears someone like Jesus who wields a different kind of power. It expresses total indifference to the restoration of a human being 
to wholeness, particularly if they deem the cost too high. It prefers pigs to the healing of individual demoniacs. What Jesus is doing in healing this man, yes, is setting him free. But don't miss this. And he's showing them his heart to bring about deliverance for a man from the demonic powers of evil. But don't miss this. This man is a paradigm. He is a symbol for what Jesus wants to do in the entire region. He is a paradigm for what Jesus wants to do in this entire community. Deliver them from the grip of demonically influenced violence and injustice and idolatry. And that's exactly what we see Jesus do here in this passage. He delivers. Jesus heals and he restores to wholeness. This is one of 20 accounts in the Gospels alone of deliverance where Jesus comes in, kingdom of God is here, and he dispels the kingdom of darkness and he rescues and he redeems from the powers of the evil one. And notice what Jesus brings and how he heals. It's so simple and so profound, and yet it was utterly amazing because they had never experienced anything like this. Really simply, here's, what, here's how Jesus heals. He brings truth, right? They, they know who he is. He's the son of God. He is God himself in the flesh. Truth is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he is not only teaching, he's embodying the very presence of God. And that's why Paul says, the kingdom of God is not talk, it's power. And Jesus embodies that power in his person. And he speaks a word. And notice the authority, the second thing we see, the authority that he brings. He just says, get out, be gone. No elaborate, like, getting into, like, you know, it, it, like, really weird, like, demonology and, like, demon hierarchies and territorial spirits. He just says, get out, be gone. I mean, Jesus doesn't have to call on another power. He doesn't say in the name of the most powerful high God. He just says, be gone, right? Like, he has that kind of authority to rebuke, to command, to cancel demonic alliances and allegiances with simple, short commands, and they were amazed. And then notice what the goal of the, the deliverance was, it's restoration, right? This man, when Jesus commands the spirits to be gone and they go down into the sea and the pigs, notice the man is dressed, finally. The naked man has some clothes, happy about that. He's in his right mind. His mind has been restored to shalom. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, which in the New Testament, this is the language of discipleship. If you're sitting at the feet of a teacher, you are a disciple. This man has been restored. He's been saved. He's been delivered. He's been rescued. You know the words sozo for salvation in the New Testament? That word has a double meaning. It means salvation, but it also means healed. It's the same word. He's healed. He's saved. He's rescued. He's delivered from the grip of bondage and oppression. Just as Jesus calmed the violent storms in the sea in chapter 4, here he calms the violent storms within the demonized man. And the purpose of deliverance is always restoration. It's not to get preoccupied with the demonic. It's not to get preoccupied with evil and injustice, to just call out evil. If all we do is just call it out and we don't bring healing, what good does it do? We want people to be rescued. We want systems to be restored. We want individuals to experience deliverance, not just to constantly be in the cycle of outrage that the world is broken. We want to see the world made whole. And that's what Jesus does. And he immediately commissions this man to go back and to witness to his community. He says, go tell them what, what I've done for you. Go tell them about the mercy that you've experienced 
is the kingdom of God is drawn near to this area. And, and notice there that the call to discipleship doesn't look the same for any two people in the New Testament. Earlier in chapter one, he says to his disciples, leave your family, leave your home, follow me. Here, this man's begging him, begging him. That's a key word in this passage, right? The demons beg, this man begs, the community begs. This man's begging to go with Jesus and become one of his disciples, and he says, no, you go back home, and, and like, for those of us who maybe grew up in broken, toxic family systems, this is like your worst nightmare. Like, you don't get to come with me and just leave that community. You gotta go back and witness to these very people who have oppressed you and beaten you and shackled you. Whoa. Not cool, Jesus. And notice just the renewal that breaks out in this region. This man's breakthrough leads to a breakthrough in the region. If you go on to chapter six, this man goes back and Jesus leaves and he comes back later into the Decapolis, one of several trips that Jesus made back into this region. And notice what happens. This time they're begging him to leave because he's upsetting the status quo. He's affecting the economy. They're like, Jesus, you gotta go. This isn't good for business. But when they come back, just one chapter later, Mark says, when they crossed over to the other side, they came back into this land, verse 53. They beached the boat. As they got out, people immediately recognized Jesus. They hurried throughout that vicinity. They began to carry the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he went into villages, homes, towns, the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him. Now they're begging him for healing. They're begging that he might just touch the tassel of Jesus' robe, and everyone who touched it was made well. That's the kind of deliverance that Jesus wants to bring, not only into our individual lives, but into our communities, into our culture, into our society. Just two quick applications. We're out of time. One, what we present as the gospel is what we present is discipleship. The good news of Jesus is that the kingdom of God is stronger than the kingdom of darkness. Jesus, the strongest man, came to bind what was viewed then as the strong man. So what that means for us then in terms of our discipleship, apprenticing ourselves to Jesus, is that discipleship is a ministry of deliverance. Do you know that people in our city need to be delivered from the powers of evil? Have we forgotten that, right? Like, we must take the reality of demonic and evil seriously if we're going to see holistic healing of individuals and communities and institutions and cultures. Our society reduces evil down, right? We say it's merely psychological, right? So what we need is therapy. It's merely physiological, so what we need is medicine. And again, I'm for medicine and I'm for lots of therapy, right? I've done both, right? But we reduce it down to just the material, right? We see our problems as merely horizontal, human, sociological, and we miss the deeper dimensions of evil in the world. There are some things that cannot be explained by mere physiology, by mere psychology, by just morality that sees the world in terms of sin and moral guilt, right? Those are all valid categories, and we need to see all of those as interlocking and interdependent, but we must not forget about the demonic. We must not forget about supernatural beings who are intent on harassing and exploiting and oppressing. And again, even if you're here and you're not a disciple of Jesus, you think this is crazy. Like, how else do you explain racism? Like, really? Like, how else do you explain racism in one of the most affluent, 
liberated, post-enlightenment, technologically advanced societies in the world, in world history. How do you explain sexism? How do you explain classism? How do you explain abortion? How do you explain all of the things that we experience, all the brokenness? How do you explain abuse on a, a crazy level, even in the church? How do you explain the drug epidemic that is ravaging our city? How do you explain the violence that is literally out of control? It is burning in our city this very week. How do you explain these things apart from supernatural demonic influence? We need to take this seriously. And Jesus wants us as his disciples to enter into this ministry of deliverance. And that's why after he did this, he sent his disciples out, the 72, two by two to go into the cities. And he says, I give you my authority to cast out demons. I give you my authority to deal with scorpions and serpents, which would have been his language for the demonic, to bring the healing of Jesus to those who are oppressed. You read Matthew 28, you have all authority. You have been given authority over the demonic. It is part of your discipleship. We see demonic deliverances throughout the book of Acts and the early Christians. If you read the stories from the earliest Christians, like one of the last things you would do if you became a Christian, before you were allowed to be baptized, they would exercise demons out of you. They had demon exorcism services that were normal in the early church up until the time of Constantine. Jesus wants to come and bring deliverance. He wants to deliver you. He wants to deliver your family. He wants to reauthor your story. He wants to take the guilt and the shame and the fear and the anger and the frustration off of us and off of our communities, and he wants to deliver us. Let's not forget that's why we exist, church, as disciples to go out into our communities, to go right into the places where no respectable religious people would want to go, and to go out into the street corners, to go into homes, to invite people into our lives, who maybe the rest of society, the rest of church is written off. Jesus sets his face towards those areas, and he says, I'm going right in there because that's where the good news of deliverance of the kingdom of God needs to be experienced. Don't get too comfortable, Jesus says. Don't exalt your own personal security, Jesus says, because I have saved you, I have healed you to be an ambassador of healing with those who are under the powers of darkness. So I ask us, like, who are the people we've written off? Where are the dark places we won't go in our city? Who are the, to quote a famous theologian, the deplorables in our community? Jesus wants to bring deliverance. And so as we come to communion, I just want to invite you personally to wrestle with this. Your own personal deliverance, maybe you find yourself in this story. Like this man, feeling naked, feeling shamed, feeling racked with guilt and anger and frustration and feeling in bondage and you don't know why. You don't know why you have this addiction. You don't know why you're compelled to live this way. You don't know why you seem to be so deceived and so incapable of, of living the flourishing life that God's invited you to live in Jesus. And maybe you feel like him, you're in the tombs. You are walking dead, right? Like you're alive, you're physically present, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you feel oppressed. You feel 
downtrodden. You feel forgotten. You feel so deeply scarred and dead on the inside. You feel the legion of oppressive forces of shame and guilt and fear and anger and trauma and sin that are fracturing your soul and fracturing your relationships. The Bible says the enemy comes to steal, to kill, to destroy. Like if you feel those things, you know the presence of the enemy is with you. See, we laugh at demon possession and it's like, oh, that's just like, you know, ancient people, they didn't understand how the world works. I actually would argue they understood way more about how the world works in this respect than we do. It's not a matter, uh, it's not a, a matter of quality, it's quantity when we think about demonization. And I just wanna encourage you to do what this man did. He just runs to Jesus. He looks at Jesus and he runs and he throws himself at Jesus' feet and Jesus heals him. And the reason that Jesus is able to bring about this healing in our lives is because later on in the Mark story, this is what we celebrate in communion, Jesus switches places with this man. Jesus has his clothes torn off of his body. He has his body literally torn apart on the cross. He's beaten, he is violated, he becomes the object of oppression. He becomes the object of all the demonic powers, evil. All of it falls on Jesus, and Jesus dies in our place for our sins. Taking all of that evil, rather than inflicting that evil on the Romans, Jesus takes the evil of the Romans into his body, and as Romans 12 says, he overcomes evil with his own goodness. That is the good news for us, is that Jesus invites us to experience that same rescue, that same deliverance. We will come and lay ourselves down at his feet. We will cry out for his deliverance. He will cast out the demons that are oppressing us, and he will restore us to wholeness and to life and to flourishing. And so I just want to invite you right now to just think about that in your own life. We're going to distribute the communion elements. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, come and trust him. Come, lay yourself down at your feet. Turn away from your sin. Invite Jesus to come and to fill you with his presence, with his power. He longs to do that. Maybe you're here and you are a Christian, but you're walking in your own forms of oppression. Maybe those are mental. Maybe they're physiological. Maybe they're straight up spiritual. I don't know what they are, but you experience this destruction, this deception, this life that is less than what the kingdom of God has on offer for you, and you need the healing presence of Jesus today. And I want to invite you just to cry out to him, to ask for help. He comes to kill and still destroy, but God comes to give us abundant life. Jesus comes to set us free. And that's what we celebrate here in communion. We have been set free, and we will continue to be set free because that's what Jesus longs for for his people. And so if you are uh, a follower of Jesus, we invite you to receive communion with us. We'll come now and distribute the elements. If you're not a follower of Jesus, um, you can just say no thanks as they come by. But let's just take a moment to confess. Let's take a moment to cry out. And then we'll sing together. We'll uh, just hang on to your communion element there, and we'll take it together, and then we'll sing, and we'll send you back out.